to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co founder of I Relaunch, and your host. Today, we welcome Jenny Brody. Jenny is a partner at a law firm she co founded, Brody Kling, which specializes in providing high quality, affordable legal representation in family law matters in the DC area. Jenny found her passion for this work when she was out on a 15-year career break to care for her children. When her youngest child started school in 2007, Jenny began volunteering to represent victims of domestic violence pro bono. Faced with the enormous unmet need for legal services in this area, in 2008, Jenny joined forces with two other attorneys on career break to form the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project which provides free legal help for domestic violence victims and at-risk children. The organization is now one of the largest providers of legal services to domestic violence victims in the district. In 2015, Jenny was named a Washingtonian of the Year by Washingtonian Magazine. Jenny, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Thank you, Carol. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we've known each other for a long time, and it's great to be talking to you all these years later after your relaunch and after doing something in your relaunch that is so meaningful and has had an impact on so many people. Uh, So I want to start, though, at the beginning, and I want to know if you can tell us what you did before your career break and how you got interested in starting the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project once you were well into your career break. So before my career break, I followed what is really a very um, sort of typical path for someone graduating from law school. I clerked for a judge. I worked at the U.S. Department of Justice, and I then worked for a um, law firm doing civil litigation, primarily representing large companies. Um, So that was my career path. um, And I worked part time after my first child was born. After my second child was born, I decided I would stay home with my kids for a while because it was really, I was struggling to work part time with, you know, and care for the kids. And that was originally envisioned as a short, um, you know, off ramping experience. Mm -hmm. I then, I then had a third child and my, um, my career break stretched ultimately to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to comment. We hear this so frequently that people think, you know, I'm only going to take a couple years off. And then the next thing you know, they wake up and like 10 years have gone by. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you and you're about to talk about like how you first got interested in the DC, forming what became the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project. So after I've been out um, not working as a lawyer for a very long time. I was not feeling highly motivated to go back to law firm practice because at that point, you know, my husband's a lawyer and we were pretty used to living on one income. And so I wasn't really primarily motivated to increase our family finances, which, you know, was a very privileged position to be in. So, but I, I really felt motivated to use my law degree in some way. And so that's what led me to start volunteering to take cases to represent domestic violence victims. And what led me to start the Volunteer Lawyers Project is that I saw that most legal services organizations in D.C. were set up 
were not set up to use the talents of lawyers who were not affiliated with law firms. Mm -hmm. And the most um, striking example of this was that I needed to buy my own malpractice insurance policy Mm -hmm. in order to take pro bono cases. And so while I didn't, I I wasn't motivated to make money. I didn't want to have to like actually pay out of pocket to provide volunteer services. And so I met two other uh, lawyers, again, home on career breaks with their kids who were in a similar position. And we thought that if we formed a nonprofit, we could get a group policy to cover all of us at a lower rate than we were paying individually. And Mm -hmm. we also thought that there were probably many more lawyers at home with kids in our position who might do volunteer work if they had the resources to do it, including, again, malpractice coverage. So one of the three co-founders happened to be a lawyer who had worked with nonprofits when she worked at a law firm. So we sat down one morning and you know, drafted out a 501c3 application and corporate documents to incorporate our organization. We held a very small informal fundraiser to gather fund, you know, to, to raise some money. And that was how the organization started in 2008. Hmm. Wow. That, that's an amazing story. Uh, I'm wondering, and maybe because it's Washington, D.C., metro area, is there a higher concentration of lawyers or lawyers who might be on <laughs> career break than maybe in some other cities? I'm sure that that's true. And in fact, the first, our first organizational meeting to recruit other lawyers or to see if there was interest in other lawyers, um, we recruited people via a mom's list, you know, a, a Northwest DC mom's listserv. And the other place we recruited lawyers was actually on our school listservs. Mm-hmm. Um, we just put out a thing saying, do you have a law degree you're not using? And mm-hmm. that was, and we, we had an informal meeting at my house. Um, and, we, and we were really surprised by the number of um, lawyers at home who showed up for that meeting and were really interested in doing this work. Wow, that's a, that's a great headline and, <laughs> and a really great origin story. Can you tell us how you pinpointed domestic violence um, or you know family legal matters as the focus for the group as opposed to some other area of pro bono legal work? Yeah, that was really not thought through in advance. Um, it was just as a, a, for me, it was just a personal process. I looked at pro bono opportunities. I thought, you know, domestic violence survivors with children, that really speaks to me. Um, or I didn't actually know if it would speak to me or not, but I thought I will, you know, let me make an effort to do this. And the first case I took was a young woman who actually did have, um, two young children, toddlers, and, had been very severely abused um, by her partner. And I just immediately connected to, I mean, first her, first her plight, but Mm -hmm. second of all, her courage and her determination to get out of her, the terrible situation she was in. And thirdly, the fact that I had legal skills that I could use to help her in a very tangible way to get a protection order, to get custody of her children, to get child support, um, you know, that I could put my legal skills to, to work in a way that really provided immediate, tangible benefits to um, this woman's life. And it was really a rewarding feeling. 
Yeah, so that leads me into the next two questions I want to ask you. And uh, it it sounds just unbelievably rewarding and such a high impact, uh, such high impact work. But I was I was trying to picture the few the founders sitting around the table and you <clears throat> register to be a 501c3 and then you're you're set up. And then what happened? Like, how did you find the first case? What happened after that? Um, like, can you just take us through maybe the first few weeks or months or even the first year and just talk about like what actually happened day to day? That's a good question. I'm, I'm casting my mind back to 2008. Um, well, actually, after our first meeting where we recruited other lawyers, we had a group of like a core group at that point of maybe six to eight uh, lawyers who were really committed to this project. And we did get a group non, you know, the first thing we did do was get a group um, policy that covered all of us, which was right. a big step because we had you know, we at that point we did have a viable 501c3 organization, and at that point we started initially taking cases from other legal services organizations, but we took them via our nonprofit. And the first thing we did is that we decided to always take cases in pairs of two, because all of us had been out of the legal practice for you know some time, and so we all felt to varying degrees, really unsure about going back to legal practice at all, number one. And number two, practicing in an area where we none of us had had prior experience. Mm-hmm. And it was somewhat daunting. And so what we did is we took training programs together, or eventually we or we were able to get lawyers who had more experience in this area, who worked at legal services organizations, to come and do group training programs for us. Mm-hmm. And that was a really important step because we needed the expertise and experience of people who had worked in this area. And then secondly, we took all cases in pairs, both because it we discovered it was a more, it, it was a better experience um, in terms of collegiality, but also really to co-mentor each other and to sort of, um, you know, provide uh, a boost of confidence. And then the third thing was a practical thing. Since we all had kids at home, we did it for backup. So, you know, on the inevitable day that there was a court hearing where one lawyer had a sick child at home, the other lawyer could step in. So it was also sort of our our backup childcare arrangement in effect. And that proved to be a really pretty successful model to the point that, as far as I know, Volunteer Lawyers Project continues to follow that model where they assign cases to lawyers in pairs because it really addresses a lot of uh, needs. So really what happened was we just started taking cases. We just said, Mm -hmm. okay, we're going to practice as lawyers in this area. Let's start taking cases. And we met regularly to talk about our cases and what kinds of issues we were experiencing and how it was going. And at the same time, we started, you know, we continued to recruit more lawyers. And we also, at that point, I think, started um, exploring other funding opportunities through, at that, I think, initially private foundations to see if we could, if there was a way we could get additional funding to fund our activities. Because another thing we, d- we discovered early on is that there were other court costs we needed to worry about, particularly, this is a sort of obscure legal point, but 
we had we had to get service of process on the opposing party. And so we had to hire private process servers and it cost money. And so that became what we called our litigation fund. Again, mm-hmm. with the idea that people were willing to volunteer, but they weren't willing to pay out of pocket to to provide pro bono. So the litigation fund covered things like um, copying costs for court documents and um, uh, serves a process, filing fees, the other types of costs associated with a case. Mm, got it. And wow, this sounds like you're learning all of this uh, on the job as, as things are progressing. A hundred percent on the job. Yes. And actually one sort of turning point for us was when a friend of a friend had a, was someone who was an MBA um, had a business degree um, and she was home with her kids and she volunteered to come in and do a planning session with us and also created something that as lawyers, we were unfamiliar with, which is an organizational chart, uh, which yeah. <laughs> so we had not thought about the need for such a thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, her name is Thea, and Thea helped us to um, understand that that would help us, and you know worked with us to create some sort of basic channels of, you know, accountability and reporting and and division of labor primarily who was going mm-hmm. to do what, and mm-hmm. that was very useful to our organization. So you know, gradually we were able to assign tasks, divide and conquer, and have structured processes for for accomplishing tasks. Mm. You know, I'm really intrigued uh, by a couple of things. First of all, essentially, you're talking about a job share. So you had a job share model in with lawyers in pairs working on each case. Correct. You think of, and, and um, you know, t- having talked to a lot of people who have been in job share relationships uh, that have worked and have not worked, the the comment that I usually hear is, both people need to be A players and have the equal commitment to the work that you're doing. So it's it's not an uneven, uh, uh, t- taking on an uneven amount of workflow. Uh, and it sounds like you had that and that you figured out this model right from the beginning. And it was it turned out to be the right model. It, it did turn out to be the right model. I mean, to be 100% honest, another factor was um, one of the first cases that we took we had to go meet with the client in her um, home where because she was caring for a very young child. And it, it as it happened, she lived in um, a housing project in Washington, D.C. called Sursum Corda, which was notorious for being a fairly high crime area. And so we also went together. I don't know what we thought we would do if there was any dangerous situation that arose, but it felt better to be with another mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that proved to be a valuable, um, you know, a valuable learning experience for future cases. But in terms of both people bringing a, you know, their A game to the job situation, I think that took care of itself because it, this was volunteer work. Right. So you're either motivated to do it or you're not. And if you're motivated to do it, you're going to do it. But I think the other thing we all discovered is that one of the skills we did not lose as lawyers from our, you know, being at home is that lawyers are pretty, you know, are what's ingrained in legal practice is meeting your client's needs, achieving mm-hmm. your client's goals. Mm-hmm. And that was something that stayed with all of us so that when we turned that 
you know, that basic lawyer's orientation to pro bono work, we were very committed to achieving our clients' goals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the well, fact that our clients' goals were so meaningful. So meaningful. Yeah. Made it really, in some respects, there was more motivation than probably any of us had experienced previously, even in law firm jobs. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're, you're working so closely with someone who is vulnerable and you're helping them uh, move out of that situation. I, it's, it's very emotional. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was. And especially, you know, we all had kids and we were made in clients and we were meeting their kids. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, once you see a toddler who needs help or a mom who needs help to protect her toddler from and keep a child safe, it becomes highly motivating. Mm. Right. Wow. Um, so I, actually, my next questions have to do with how did people your your potential clients hear about you and and how did you actually get connected with these cases that that you took and then how did other members of the legal profession um understand what you were doing and start referring cases to you so right so initially we took cases from existing legal services organizations oh, right. as i said so that's how the cases came into us and then as it happened, one of the organizations we worked closely with, which was a, a domestic violence organization, actually lost funding a couple of years after we started our organization, lost funding and um, actually disbanded. So they didn't exist anymore. And because that left such a void in mm. the legal services area in Washington, D.C., and we had a structure to take those cases. We worked at that point, we worked directly with an organization affiliated with the court and started taking, we started getting referrals directly, essentially directly from the court for domestic violence cases. Mm-hmm. And then judges referred cases to it. Judges got to know us because we were in court right. and they started referring cases to us as well. And then as the organization have grown, has grown, can you give us a sense of, you know, you started, it sounds like, with about six people. How big is it now? And oh what was that growth trajectory over time? And are there still significant numbers of relaunchers, like lawyers who are on career break, who uh, work in the organization? Well, that's interesting that you say, because I just spoke to um, a lawyer who contacted me through some other means and she was wanting to relaunch. And so I suggested, you know, in fact, I think she contacted me because she was interested in our law firm. And I suggested to her that, and she was interested in in family law. And I said, well, my best advice would be to contact Volunteer Lawyers Project and, you know, start taking cases with them. And a few months later, she emailed me to say, this is, you know, I'm taking cases. This is a phenomenal experience. This is you know, really helpful. So yes, there are still relaunches. You know, our organization grew really rapidly because looking back in time in 2008, it was in the middle of the recession, which um, actually perversely benefited our organization because a lot of lawyers were laid off from law firms or they Mm -hmm. had offers from law firms that were rescinded. And so it wasn't just relaunches. It wasn't just relaunchers who were home with their kids. It was also started to be other lawyers who weren't affiliated with law firms. And so they started seeking out Volunteer Lawyers Project. It's 
because of the name of our organization, when you did a Google search for volunteer and lawyer on Google, our pretty rapidly our organization was the first thing that popped up, but we didn't pay for that. Yeah, it just, it just worked out that way. So we started getting many inquiries, and then a third thing we did fairly early on is that we we made a connection with a person who is a lawyer in the D.C. government. As you can imagine, there are many federal government lawyers. And interestingly, federal government lawyers are allowed to do pro bono work on their free time. Um, the government encourages them, but the government doesn't, again, provide malpractice insurance for them. So once again, it was back to that. Since we were offering to provide malpractice insurance for anyone who volunteered with us, we started getting many, many inquiries from federal government lawyers who wanted to take cases with us. And we set up a whole system, you know, it's sort of an official system with the um, federal government, you know, the coordinator for pro, pro bono activities for federal government lawyers. And another thing we discovered, you know, it's sometimes it's really small practical things. Federal government lawyers couldn't get time off in the day to during the workday to attend training programs. Mm -hmm. So we did training programs for them in the evenings in federal government buildings, which they made available to us um, so that they could come directly from work to a training program. And we provided dinner. So, oh, wow. You so, thought of everything. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes the smallest things make a huge difference. So we started yeah. getting, Very you know, it became feasible for people because we were doing the training programs at a place that was close to their work site, starting after work, and you know they wouldn't, they didn't have to pick up dinner before they came, and we pared down our training program so we could do them relatively quickly, and that's how it worked. Wow, a lot of ingenuity there, and um, interesting to see how it evolved to include these different groups of lawyers. Um, you mentioned your law firm. Brody Kling. And I wanted to know if you could tell our listeners when Brody Kling got formed, why, and at what point um, after your involvement with the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project. Sure. So one of the things, well, among other things, one of the things we did at Volunteer Lawyers Project was we set up and we got grant funding actually for a walk-in domestic violence clinic which was that people could just come and, you know, they didn't need an appointment. We had translators from multiple different languages through an online service. And they could meet privately with a lawyer um, for, you know, whatever amount of time it, it took. And initially I staffed the clinic, um, just just worked out that way because I was interested in doing it. And so what I started to see at the clinic was multiple people coming in who Actually, who were victims of domestic violence and desperately needed services, but were not eligible for free civil legal services through the Volunteer Lawyers Project because they were over income. Mm -hmm. So part of our 501c3, um, a constraint was we serving a low income population and low income is defined under the tax code or generally as within two to 400% of federal poverty guidelines. And that is a really low number. And so particularly for an area like Washington, D.C. So it meant that even someone who, you know, was working in retail, for example, making minimum wage um, or slightly above minimum wage was not eligible for free legal services. And certainly someone who was a teacher, a bus driver, a police officer, 
you know, a whole range of people who were employed just weren't eligible. And it was just heartbreaking to tell them that because these were also people who could not afford the going rate for family lawyers, which, you know, tends to be it start at 300 and goes up $300 an hour and goes up to $600 an hour. Mm -hmm. And there was just simply no way they could afford that. And we had nowhere to refer them to. We, you know, we asked around, we tried to find names of lawyers who might take these cases on a reduced fee basis, but it was really difficult to, to find any names of folks who would do it. So it, it was just a constant, really a source of um, frustration to me. And I was just seeing a very large unmet need in that area. And so um, eventually, so there was some talk for a long time within DCVLP, could we start a four, you know, a, a four fee service within the structure of our nonprofit, but that's actually pretty complicated to do uh, for various legal reasons. So um, what happened in 2016, well, actually, one of the first things that happened was I took a leave of absence from DCVLP to work on the Hillary Clinton campaign. So unfortunately, we we know how that turned out. Mm -hmm. um, to, I mean, really, to, to everyone's shock and surprise, including mine. So that was, you know, so I was then sort of recouping from that shock. Mm -hmm. When another lawyer, Volunteer Lawyers Project, and I, would, we had been talking about this idea for a while, thought, well, why don't we experiment with starting a, you know, what we called at that time a low bono law firm, which would be a law firm that would um, handle domestic violence cases on a reduced fee basis, you know, a slide, charging a sliding scale based on clients' income. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't know if that would be a viable economic model because we weren't a nonprofit. We didn't have grant funding. So we had to cover our costs and, you know, it, at least not lose money. In fact, our initial goal was to at least make as much as we had been making as salaried, you know, our salaries at Volunteer Lawyers Project. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we started Brody Kling. And again, Brody Kling the law firm just exploded as soon as we opened the firm. There were people referred to us, and primarily legal services organizations who, again, were turning away clients because they were over income mm -hmm. for free civil legal services, started referring clients to us, and they were glad to have a place to refer clients. And then word of mouth spread. And again, the firm grew very rapidly. We hired an associate who's now a partner. We hired another associate. We have a paralegal. So again, the firm grew quite quickly. And how long has the firm been around at this point? Uh, let's see. We we got organized and started January 2017. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, four four point something years. I yeah. guess I don't. Wow. Um, did you ever envision this that this is where you would end up um, post career break when you first began your time home with your children? Not in a million years. I can say that with great. <laughs> well, there were many things I didn't envision. When I think of myself graduating law school, first of all, if anyone had told me that I would end up leaving legal practice to stay home with my kids, I would have said, no, that's not mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, maybe I want kids, but certainly I'll continue working after I have children. So mm -hmm. the impulse to stop working and stay home with my kids came as a complete shock to me. Um, not in the least what I had ever envisioned. 
And then in addition, my interests in law school were in, sort of in civil litigation in the way it's traditionally practiced in law firms, which is, um, you know, you're working for big companies or you're handling large cases and you're doing litigation in that in that format. Um, and so the idea of doing legal services for low income people just really had never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And I had not taken any classes in family law in law school. So it was not an area I really knew anything about. Yeah, actually, that was one of my questions that I realized I didn't ask you earlier. So when a new lawyer comes on board, like now or like in recent years, and this the family law area is completely new to them, how long does it typically take them to get up to speed to be able to be representing clients? Well, so again, our, mo- our original model was we took cases in pairs, and then we expanded that model to say, okay, so once two lawyers have taken a case together and gotten some experience, each of them will then take cases with a new lawyer who doesn't have experience mm-hmm. and mentor that lawyer. And then that lawyer will take a case with someone who doesn't have. So we mm-hmm. sort of had a cascading effect, mm-hmm. a ripple effect of people who had experience. And then once the organization got grant funding, what we did is we hired lawyers, you know, lawyers actually who had been volunteers with us who did a good job. And they became official paid supervisors on all cases. And so that became the way that we had, well, first of all, we had train, you know, we had official training programs for lawyers so they could get sort of content knowledge in the areas in which we practice. Mm-hmm. And then we had a paid supervisor assigned to every case to, you know, supervise at a higher level. And then we did a couple of other things. One was we created what we called a pleadings library because lawyers, Often when they have to file documents, they they need templates. So we created an online pleadings library. And at that point, we had some technical help to do it. And we had folks volunteering to organize it. And that made it so that a lawyer who took a new case could just download a pleading as a Word document um, and file the documents they needed to, you know, to handle the case in court, but without having to reinvent the wheel every time. So that was really a useful um, process. And we created training materials. We created um, a domestic violence handbook, which law firms volunteer, you know, donated copying costs to us. Mm-hmm. Of course, now everything's online, but mm-hmm. you know, we just we created our own training materials. And then we also sort of pioneered something which almost all legal services do now. In fact, everyone does now, which was to record our training programs and have them available online. And so initially it was pretty primitive. Like we literally hired someone with a video camera. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like a film student to record the training program and, and, you know, sort of splice it together with a PowerPoint. And then we, we, at that point, the organization had a website and we put the training programs on the website. And that was a way that people could do the training program online, access all the training materials online. And also access, again, our pleadings library of, um, you know, court documents. So it became, you know, even for someone who didn't have prior family law experience, it became feasible to handle a case at a high level, you know, provide high quality services Mm -hmm. at a high level using the organization's resources. 
Can you just uh, clarify for our non-legal audience, a the pleadings library, is that documentation for when you have to file to have a, a case heard in court? Correct. So but pleadings are, are just lawyer speak for documents filed in court. So just at the simplest level, um, you know, a client comes in and she needs custody of her kids. So you need to file a complaint for custody. So you would go to the pleadings library. There's a Word document, complaint for custody in a domestic violence case. Mm. It gives you a template of the kinds of things. Of course, the the lawyer assigned to the case has to fill in the individual facts after meeting right. with the client and, you know, modify the document to meet the needs of the particular case. But the pleadings library would give you a template that you would use as a starting point. Got it. That's helpful. We're going to have to wrap up now. I But there, there's one question I want to ask you before I ask you our final question that we ask all of our podcast guests. And I'm just curious, where do you get the funding for the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project? You said grant funding, like who gives the, who um, uh, responds to the grant requests? Well, so originally we got funding through foundations. In fact, there was like someone had a connection to Verizon and Verizon is a company that happens to be very forward thinking in terms of um, providing grant, private grant funding for domestic violence organizations, mm-hmm. a whole range, you know, from domestic violence shelters to other types of resources. And we were, you know, able to make a case that providing legal services to domestic violence victims was a really important service. So that I believe that was our first grant. And then eventually, we became eligible to apply for government grants, both federal and DC um, local government grants. And so that was the second step where we began getting government grant funding. And so eventually, you know, we had to hire a development director who was responsible for writing the uh, the original grants were all drafted by the original volunteers. Mm-hmm. And again, we did not have any grant writing experience, but um, really grant writing turned out to be very similar to legal work in the sense that you're trying to make a persuasive case mm-hmm. for why someone should give you money. <laughs> um, so really our legal skills in terms of writing and persuasive writing and arguing, you know, arguing for a result were very applicable to grant writing. And and so it was the original, yeah, the original grant uh, volunteers for the organization, it was a joint effort, um, wrote the original grants and just sort of figured out how to write grants and then figured out how to do budgets. Again, our, our MBA volunteer was very helpful for that. Um, helping us create budgets because grant applications require budgets. So she was integral to that, to that process. And, um, and then what we also discovered is having a grant leads to getting other grants because once you have some grant funding, it shows other funders that you're a legitimate organization, you have budgets, you have, you know, a process. Eventually we had audited financials, you know, once we could afford an audit, we had audited financials and that enabled us to apply for more grants. So everything, everything sort of built on itself step by step. Yeah. You know, you're, it's a nonprofit, but you're really telling an entrepreneurial story. This is very entrepreneurial, what you were building and the grant that the way you're describing grants is almost the same way that you would describe like venture capital funding that once someone is in, then it legitimizes you and then other other organizations come in to do that kind of funding. So a lot of parallels there. Really interesting. Uh, quite an 
unbelievable accomplishment. Uh, so oh. I just want to acknowledge that. And and we um, we at iRelaunch have been following your relaunch story for many years now, and just to see what you've done and how many lives you've impacted has is is. It's, it's just so meaningful. And I just want to thank you for the work that you do. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, so I want to wrap up now, Jenny, with the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? That's a really good question. And again, um, you're, I'm going down memory line and thinking about myself in 2007 when I, I first started thinking about re-entering the legal profession by taking pro bono cases. And I, what I recall is thinking to myself, I've been spending a lot of the last few years like scraping Cheerios off the floor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and do I really have any professional skills? Mm. You know, or are they gone? Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is that I did and that my professional skills, I mean, yes, I was rusty and I really needed to learn a lot, but I would say to anyone who's thinking of relaunching, who's been home with their kids and feels as a result of that experience that perhaps they've lost their professional skills or that, you know, they're, those are, they're available to you. They are still there and they will come back. Um, or, you know, I'm thinking of it as something outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. Your professional persona is part of you mm -hmm. and it is still in you and you are still that person. And so it may take a while and you may need to retrain and you may need to take baby steps, you know, back into your professional life. But, you know, the skills and the professional orientation are still with you. Mm, that's great messaging to leave everyone with to that you have it's in you. You have to access it again, right? Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, Jenny, can you tell our audience how can people find out more about the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project and also about Brody Kling? Sure. Um, the DC Volunteer Lawyers Project, just type it in as a Google search and it will pop up immediately. Mm -hmm. And I know they're really busy right now. Um, the pandemic, as you know, probably many people have heard, has actually increased the need for domestic violence services. Unfortunately, that has mm -hmm. been true both of DC Volunteer Lawyers Project and of our law firm. So, really encourage if there are lawyers out there seeking to relaunch and in the DC metro area, it's a really a terrific way to do it. So, dcvolunteerlawyersproject.org. And my firm is uh, Brody, B-R-O-D-Y, Kling, K as in kite, L-I-N-G, dot com. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. And thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to share this podcast with a friend. 
on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.